Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today we have a truly incredible show, one of my favorites to date. His name is Alex Ebert, but many of you will know him as the founder of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. This band really was one of the leaders in the folk renaissance, the late 2000s, Grammy-nominated, Golden Globe winners. Uh, but on top of being this incredible musician, spreading joy in the world, he's also an activist and an entrepreneur. So he is the founder of the Big Sun Foundation, advocating for a community land trust. He started a company called Proxy Vote, which enables constituents to vote directly on bills uh, through their representatives. And he just launched an app recently called Tuners, which is almost like Reddit for audio messages. So he's a really incredible uh, thinker in terms of how do we transcend the limitations that society and even our own mind can place on us. And uh, his art has really been this vehicle of letting himself go so he can give other people permission to be themselves. And so much of this conversation felt poetic, so many great nuggets about the way that culture works and impacts us to how he has really started to transcend his own social anxiety. And some of the stories you're going to hear are so incredible, things you can only hear from someone who's had the privilege of playing music for 40,000 people at Coachella. So without further ado, I know you're going to love it. Alex Ebert. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Uh, today, we have uh, Alex Ebert, and Alex is chiming in from New Orleans at the moment. Alex, how are we doing? Good. Uh, uh, thank you for pronouncing it in the Southern way. Um, it's actually German, so most people say Ebert, but I much prefer Ebert. <laughs> it's, such, it's, so, it's so much softer. It's so much softer, yeah. <laughs> so how are things going down there? Uh, wonderful. I love New Orleans. There was a massive, uh, thunderstorm, uh, that was right above the, the apartment I'm in. Um, so I had to wake up and turn all the, turn the computer off so I don't lose my, all my stuff. But it was, um, yeah, I love it here. I'm on Frenchman street, which is the main jazz street in the quarter. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was down there for a talk last year, and I, I just remember it had been a while since I was walking around a city at night and just truly taken back by how much of the city I just didn't know. It was such a beautiful place to just be alone, walking through the streets, popping on a little dives, hearing music. Mm-hmm. So how'd you, how'd you end up in New Orleans? Um, from two, well, no. I, so I, I almost came here uh, to go to Tulane. Not almost. I just came to check it out. And only 10 years later, I realized that uh, the day that I came to visit was Mardi Gras. Um, mm. And so a friend of mine that had already gone here took me around. And, and only in retrospect, I realized what was going on, all the, the breasts that were being shown to me and the beads being thrown to me and, and getting drunk on these hurricanes and these, uh, these grenades and, and these, the, the names of these various famous drinks that they have here. And then one of the guys in the room peed in the corner of the dorm room that night, and I, I think probably I made the decision. Wow, this this place is crazy. I'll, I should I probably shouldn't come here, um, but I didn't realize it was Mardi Gras at the time. Um, and then from touring around with Edward Sharp and whatnot, um, you you end up in this. 
I mean, this speaks to the topic that I wanted to talk about. You, you, you tour around, and there's this old saying, you know, attributed to a few people like Mark Twain and Tennessee Williams, where um, America has three cities, New York, New Orleans, and San Francisco. The rest is Cleveland. Um, <laughs> and when you tour around, that's, that's fairly accurate, especially in a band when you're touring around, you... Um, you don't necessarily hit the like the hip enclave of each city, but rather sort of whatever is the easiest for the bus to get to, and the city gets represented in these sort of basic ways. And as you go from city to city, it, it becomes a blur, not just because of the amount of shows you're doing, but because literally each city resembles the other so so um, so much that it's hard to tell them apart. And um, yeah. But New Orleans was the one, and I'd say, I'd say that that saying is still true. But New Orleans stands out like this beautiful sore thumb. It's just um, there's this great moment in this documentary um, by Les Blanks about New Orleans. He's trying to figure out, get to the bottom of why New Orleans is so special. And this guy um, is sitting there in the in this window of this apartment, and he's contemplating really deeply. And he says, "Why is New Orleans?" different why is it beautiful and he goes it's just the only place where you can just live you know <laughs> mm. just this really basic response and it's totally true it, it it's it's a city that gives you you feel permission as soon as you enter it to me and it's got problems and it's fucked up and and all of that but i gotta say most of the cities i've been to that have problems and are fucked up aside from war zone ones um, you also feel that sense of permission. Um, so there's some correlation there between danger and permission. So I, I want to get to the big idea, but you just said it, it's permission to live. And what, is, what does that mean to you? Um, yeah, that is the big idea, regardless of who's big, like what the big idea <laughs> is, right? Permission to live. Um, so I grew up in uh, the Valley uh, in Los Angeles. Um, um, sort of middle class, upper middle class, um, all the benefits of that being white and a male and upper middle class. And, um, and yet I was in the Valley and, and going to school in North Hollywood and, uh, and on the track team. Um, so I, I got to experience people that didn't have sort of those luxuries and, and got exposed to sort of uh, inner city life by the time I was sort of 10 and was just really blown away. I'll never forget that the kids on the track uh, team, these black kids who were a little bit older than me, the way that they behaved, um, I was suddenly like, wow, what is this music, first of all? And what is this way of life where you just start dancing or you just start singing and you're laughing and you're, you're just this other sort of culture that was not the sort of white and uptight sort of thing. Um, and I started sort of doing some sort of soul searching about exactly what is the correlation between um, affluence and repression. Hmm. Um, so for instance, you go to Brentwood um, and, you know, if you play music after midnight, the cops will show up. Um, but when I moved to East LA, I'll never forget, I had a studio in East LA in a, uh, almost entirely Mexican neighborhood. And um, 
and I was playing music. I was bumping it and 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 working on a, a track at 4 a.m. And the next me- morning, this sort of essay guy that I was slightly wary of came up to me in the street and said, um, "Hey, I heard you. I heard you playing music at like 4 a.m. last night." I was like, "Oh shit! I- I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just working on something." He's like, "Nah." It was cool. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, what a difference. And what is this? So, so I had these little breadcrumbs of, um, of, of, of this concept of, of permission. And, and, and one of the clues was that so- something about affluence and property and the sense of sort of, um, you know, this is mine, keep stay away from mine and I'm going to protect mine, uh, having some correlation to, um, to uh, permission being sort of slowly taken away from you. And, and we're, we're not talking about sort of economic permission, but we're talking about sort of like spiritual permission um, to just sort of be. Um, and, you know, and you see it on down from things like etiquette um, to, you know, whatever it is, uh, to dress codes, um, you know, not being able to, for instance, there's a, a great restaurant here, but it's a very sort of high class restaurant. If you walk in with a hat, they have to take it. If you don't have a jacket, you have to put one on. Um, and, you know, these sort of social social norms. Um, for instance, when I was uh, 19, I went to uh, Holland and tried to stay in this four star restaurant, um, uh, restaurant, four star hotel. And um, I'd been literally sleeping on the streets and it was definitely during my druggy punk rock phase and we had been sleeping on the streets in these shitty places but i had some money and i was like fuck it i'm going to spend this money yeah. on a four-star hotel now so we walked up and um and they wouldn't let us in a guy came actually like saw us coming and walked 20 feet off the hotel prop property to meet us and keep us from coming any closer and i said well we have money you know we'd like to stay here and he said no and i said yeah but we have the money and he said no and he's looking us up and down because we don't fit the description. I have a, a, a mohawk and, um, and whatnot. And, um, and then I show him the money and he says no. And this was a good 15 years ago. And, um, and I've noticed that it's changed because rock and roll has slowly worked its way where now you can't quite tell the difference between a bum and a rock star. So you kind of have to, if they're, if they're there, they probably have to be there kind of vibe. Um, I, I know I'm not supposed to say bum, but from their perspective. And, um, yeah, so anyway, this, this idea of permission and as it's related to, to affluence and, and, and all that, there's something there in, in that, in that area. And then, and then there's just the general basic, um, force, which I call, um, the strongest, um, non, non-violent, uh, although it's violent, non non-physical force uh in the in the the human universe i think which is social anxiety and um social anxiety really is the the main culprit of uh, or the main enforcer really of uh, Mm. of a lack of permission and and keeping us all in line and and self-regulated um and and without without you know preventing us from giving ourselves permission so that that idea of self conscious um social anxiety um has been something i've been focused on as a performer it's something that you you almost have to confront um because before you go on stage you really can't be riddled with social anxiety otherwise you're going to suffer when you're on stage so you have to find ways to liberate yourself at least for the moment and i think that that's why 
you know, a lot of people think that you wear a mask when you go on stage and, and you don some sort of character when you're on stage, especially me having a, anyone who has another, you know, a pseudonym when they go on stage, like Edward Sharp, as opposed to my real name. They're like, oh, he's playing this character, but it is the exact fucking opposite. Amen. Um, you have to take the mask off <laughs> when you go on stage. You can wear the mask. No, society doesn't require your honesty. The stage requires your honesty. And so you suddenly have to confront this concept of permission and granting yourself permission to just fucking be in the moment. And um, so in that sense, being a performer is, uh, is a boon because it, it forces you to sort of uh, reconcile with this concept of permission. That's yeah, beautiful, man. My, my whole perception about the space, because I actually do a lot of work in the realm of kind of coaching entrepreneurs, teaching people how to exist more comfortably in interpersonal dynamics. And uh, I heard the, the Reverend uh, Angel Kyoto Williams, and she talks about her definition of love. And she said that love to me is space. And I just got goosebumps through my spine when I said it. she said love Ooh. is space, space for people to be exactly who they are and need to be. And when I heard that, man, it just, it just completely transformed how I viewed people. Like, how can I create space to receive this person as exactly who they are, to understand them for who they are and not who I need them to be for any reason. And, you know, again, I think that, that like one of the, the biggest books in the world right now is like the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And one of the major messages is like how to not care so much what other people think. And I, mm. when I read that, I think just what you said, it's the exact opposite. It's not not giving a fuck. It's giving the right fucks. It's like, mm -hmm. who am I? who do I want to be in the world? And, you know, if social anxiety is the fear of negative judgment, then the answer is really just caring more about who I am and, and trusting that expressing that in the world is, is really the, the path. Totally. So, man. It's, you know, that, that reminds me of this, um, this story that, that has a little bit of a backstory. And um, it's the first time I played Coachella. Uh, first time I was in, ever in front of a crowd of 40,000 and I'd been in front of large crowds, but, um, and I thought I could handle it. But, um, but right before going on stage, I did, I started to panic and, um, and just some backstory there. Whenever I used to, in my previous incarnation as a musician, um, I was sort of entrained in the punk rock mentality of creating your own space and not giving a fuck, which is to say, I show everyone else how little of a fuck I give so about myself and the situation I'm in and the stage and whatever so that I, I make myself impervious to their judgment by judging myself preemptively. Hmm. Um, so it's this sort of, and by destroying myself preemptively, they can't destroy me and, um, because I'm already sort of at, at my own throat. Yeah. Um, and, and along with that sort of trope of behavior, um, growing up for me in the 90s, I was distinctly aware of this notion that uh, joy, expressions of joy uh, are perceived to be foolish, foolishly earnest. And, um, and snarling and, and smiling maybe if I was bleeding from like a head wound, um, but that was about it. Um, and it was all about sort of this snark, like this pessimistic, snarky, sarcastic, sardonic, um, that space was the safe space to be an artist in, um, to express just like jubilant, unbridled, unfettered joy, or to act like a child, or to just grin for no reason, 
on stage or to, you know, to do any of those things was sort of almost to just be this weird sellout. Um, and it wasn't, it, it just wasn't acceptable, um, from my perspective and, and the culture that I felt, um, existed. And, in, and, and so the social anxiety at the time and that I grew up with was, uh, one of the norms was to, to not be, uh, expressive of joy in a sense and to not be earnest and and because you didn't want to look like a fool and be naive and there's a whole there's a whole sort of underpinnings as to why culture was like that at any point and why grunge and and those things and punk rock had such an effect um but anyway so you cut to Coachella and I'm on stage and and at that point I had decided and the whole band had decided together that we were just children we weren't rock stars and we weren't going to do that bullshit we were going to go on stage and just share our unfettered uh joy uh and and wonder at even being on stage and it was just a game of show and tell and we were just children and that was what was fucking real and so that's what we did and we, i was never going to succumb again to that sort of snarling being mean to the audience or rude to myself or any of that bullshit. But anyway, so suddenly there's 40,000 people and I get on stage and before we hit a note, I fucking panic and I take the mic stand off, uh, the mic off the mic stand and I chuck the mic and some pe anybody listening who remembers this Coachella uh, might remember this. I think it was like 2010, 2009. And I take the, micro the microphone stand and I chuck it into the photo pit, but I chuck it in that way where I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I don't fuck <laughs> I don't fucking care about this or fucking you or myself or anything. Like I'm fucking free. Fuck you. And I chuck it into the photo pit and it lands and does this amazing bounce. And then the tip of it hits the kid that's in the very front row straight across the forehead and lacerates him like a three inch laceration and blood just starts gushing down the kid's face. Oh man. And the cameras turn to him and now the kid's on the jumbotron. <laughs> and and we have not hit a note um so it's dead silent all of a sudden and this kid's bleeding and i just made him bleed and i have this amazing moment in in internally where i'm just like okay god <laughs> okay god <laughs> all right universe i get it i get it fuck i i'll never do this again it was this amazing like lesson and i i took my shirt off i wrapped it around his head and i made a total pact with the universe or whoever, whatever it was that, that, and is that creates moments like that for us, um, that I, that I understood the message. And, and to this day, I really never, um, succumbed to that, uh, that variation of claiming my own space again. And instead doing what you're, what, what you were saying, declaring, giving myself the permission and the space to be as I am, to, to, to express whatever the, the genuine feeling is in the moment, not to put on the armor of irony or the armor of pessimism or self-destruction, but to uh, just allow myself to be, you know, so. I, I mean, I, that you use the word armor feels so appropriate there, right? Yeah. Of all those things as a means to, to protect ourselves in some way, shape or form, but uh, mm. As a, a beautiful introduction, man. My my jaw was on the floor when you were telling that story, but truly incredible and probably a perfect segue. So, you know, as we talked about before, on what's the big idea? We really like to talk to some of the smartest people on the planet and give them a platform to just distill a a singular idea or piece of wisdom, an experience that's impacted them. 
uh, in a way that people can really integrate it into their lives. And so with all the stuff you have going on right now that we talked about in the intro, what's the, what's the one big idea? What's the thing that you really wish more people could make a consistent part uh, of their experience? Well, um, I th I think basically what we've been talking about this this idea of um, I think social anxiety has been uh, this invisible um, despot and has been careening our individual lives and our collective lives um, into this interesting place where we feel, um, we feel, I, I think we feel the powers of social anxiety and, and yet the way that we choose to handle, um, combating, um, our sense of self repression and societal repression is to essentially lash out and, and don expressions of, um, of violence towards one another. And this goes all the way down from a fuck you, you fucking fuck t-shirt um, to, um, to the various sort of like, you know, store-bought, um, Ed Hardy, um, uh, punk rock expressions to the uh, hip-hop sort of gangster expressions of sort of hardness and fuck you and I don't give a fuck. And, um, and, and that whole, that whole idea of like, you know, fuck you, I'm free. Um, is like a misguided it's step one, um, basically. And, and I think that we all have to go through that step, um, because it's the most obvious thing when your parents are telling you something and you finally have that moment where you break free from them and you say fuck you to your mom or to your dad like the fuck you concept is um is really obvious and it's right there and and for all of us to grab um but there is uh the problem that fuck you um is not necessarily representative of our actual true nature um degradating ourselves uh, wow that was massive thunder degradating ourselves or our neighbors in order to claim our space um, in the end is just degradation that's all that you know when you boil it down it may claim your space and feel like a revolution and like a rebellion but in fact it's uh, entirely confining and so I suppose, you know, it's not that what I want the world, it's what I want for myself. I mean, like I said, I, I don my mask when I'm off stage and, um, and I'd like to be a lot more in real life um, or, you know, off the stage as I am when I'm on it. Um, but it's very difficult to do. And it's like the daily practice, right? It's like, how do we, how do we just fucking feel comfortable and be ourselves? and um and experience uh the joy of that and 
You said something at the beginning, though, that I think, you know, from my perspective, selfishly, what I want society to do, um, aside from wanting that for everybody uh, and wanting it for myself, I think it's just as important to give everybody else the space, to, to, to grant yourself the space to do that, but also to, to be willing to grant other people the same space and, um, and be willing to be, you know, embarrassed by it and by yourself. Um, the amount of times my father would embarrass me um, and, and I would get red in the face and just wish he wasn't stretching in the middle of the restaurant or, <laughs> you know, uh, just doing the random little things that would drive me crazy. Now, my father was a therapist, um, like of the 70s, uh, and uh, sort of a gestalt disciple of like Ram Dass and, and whatnot. And that that whole thing I found out later because I asked him, I was like, why would you, why were you always naked? Um, cause it drove me crazy. Um, cause it was so embarrassing. Or why were you always uh, standing on your head? Or why were you always sort of doing these weird stretches in public? Um, and he told me, he said, because I was afraid to do all those things. Mm. I was like, Oh, <laughs> so you were working on your freedom. You were working on giving yourself space. Um, Working on your freedom. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say that again. Actually, yeah, right. I, I just got out of a, a Gestalt training this past weekend. I'm a I'm a big student of the, the modality. Right. Yeah, working on your working on your freedom, and um, you know, and and so we we do we shift the pendulum. A lot of the stuff he would do is particularly in public because you, you know, in order to sort of really exercise your rights, sometimes you feel like you have to essentially do it in the space that it's where you feel like it's not okay to do it so that you know you actually have the freedom to do it whenever you want and so you know exhibitionism um sort of can become part of it and then suddenly the exhibitionism is sort of this false you know becomes sort of fraudulent in a way because it's forced and it's a really tricky space we're in right now i think just as a as a culture being aware of these things trying to extricate ourselves from these chains requires sort of um, a certain degree of of exhibitionism and and publication of our efforts, um, and so then is that fraudulent? Because while you're doing it publicly, of course, it's a concerted effort, so it's more real. And then when you go and you're just walking the street as a normal person, and you desire some anonymity, are you still free? Um, you know, uh, but I, I guess I guess in the end, you know. The, the book that I'm working on right now just essentially wants to draw attention to the idea that we are constrained by this invisible, this invisible hand and not just constrained by it, but guided by it sort of in that sort of Adam Smithy sort of invisible hand sense um, that um, it's not necessarily God that's guiding our will to, to do, you know, to buy what we buy, but rather social anxiety and, and the social the social norms and to do what we do and all that. And just to be sort of more aware of the power of social anxiety, I would say just as a step one. Yeah. And so what happened? So when you talk about wanting to bring light to some of those invisible forces, which I totally agree with someone we had on the podcast a few shows ago was a guy named Warren Farrell, who's been this long time, you know, advocate for the feminist second wave feminism. And then as he's kind of 
evolved as, as this thought leader in the space. He just talks about wanting to transcend the, the limiting gender roles that impact both men and women of like, this is what a man is and a woman is. And he says, you know, we exist in a time outside of the context of survival where those, those roles are just limiting to the expression of who individuals can be and how do we eliminate those. And so it's something that I'm really fascinated by. And so what, what happens in your experience when you start to become more aware of those forces that are constricting that authentic expression of your being? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, to speak on the sort of the idea that, that, you know, certain, certain rules we live by have, uh, have passed their expiry. Um, social anxiety in a large, uh, to a large degree is one of them. Um, you know, social anxiety is like this thing where like, you know, um, I don't want to behave outside of the, the norms of the group so that I'm not excommunicated from the group so that I don't shiver and starve in the wilderness alone. Yeah. I need to, I need to be a part of the group. Um, and so I'm going to abide by the norms of the group. And, um, someone relayed a story to me, um, and it was, it's not Joan Didion. It, it's the, the, the woman who studied the apes, whose name is escaping me right now, but, um, why you know I'm talking about? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I sorry at a, a morning yeah. dance party or something. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, but uh, Jane Goodall. Jane sorry. Goodall, yeah. There you go. Yeah. And um, so, so she was noticing something about you know uh, chimpanzees and how wow they're they're more evolved than us and and they're amazing and I love them. And then she observed that there was sort of a, a black sheep of the group who who went off and sort of was was different and wouldn't necessarily participate with the group and was doing their own thing. And so the group killed her. They just went and, and killed her. And she dis, she determined after that, that the chimpanzees weren't as evolved as us, et cetera. And, but I don't know if that's, in, I don't know, you know, less or more evolved, but in, in a primal setting, when someone creates differentiation and starts to individualize and and set and atomize from the group and become separate. Um, that disturbs the entire survival of the group itself, um, because then if others start doing the same thing and that starts catching on, um, suddenly there's no cohesion and there's no group uh, survival and 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 we are weaker when we're separate. Um, we we just are. That's just a fact. Um, you know, in the context of of um, of, of survival and, and the more, and and the elements and, and all that. But once we get beyond the elements and we end up in a place like we are now, and we've evolved to this place, we're totally capable of living a life entirely isolated from humanity and surviving on Amazon or something. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's no immediate repercussion, uh, for deciding to individuate from the group. And so, um, when you think about it in terms of you know the the modern context, um, one thing that that really has helped me is just to remember that whatever social anxiety I'm feeling um, has antiquated beyond its usefulness um, for the time being. And of course, it'll always be with us. So if you ever want to employ your social anxiety again for the benefit of your own survival, of course you can. Um, you know how to like fit in if you need to. But until that moment of, you know, post-apocalyptic moment comes. We don't need to do that. Um, anyway, and as to the, the effect um, that that realization has on me, 
Um, and it's funny, it's just a mental realization, but it has this immediate sort of psychic, psycho-spiritual effect on me when I, when I remember that it's, um, that there is, I'm not going to die. Like a lot of people don't realize social anxiety is actually the fear of death. It's not a fear of being judged. It's a fear of being judged and then dying because you were judged. Mm -hmm. And that's like this, this integral elemental uh, biological mechanism. Think, can you say that one more time? Because I think it's again just for, to really hammer that point home. Because it, it, it's totally true. Like you said, that's that's a primary impulse. Yeah. So social anxiety isn't a fear of judgment, and it's not a fear of the embarrassment. It's a fear that that judgment and embarrassment is going to kill you, um, because the group and it's a biological elemental sort of impulse. But that the group, if they judge you, and they don't like you anymore, they're going to ban banish you from the group and you're going to die and shiver and starve in the cold um uh you know and and you know in perilous situations that we might have been in long long times ago um so anyway again to yeah to social anxiety is the fear of death it's it's that's what it is and once you realize that you're not going to die if people judge you because those are no longer the circumstances social anxiety doesn't need to have such a grip on you anymore um, yeah. so, yeah. And so once you, you know, and a lot of my, a lot of my thinking around fears is essentially that, um, and this is not new stuff, but that fear of death, um, is essentially what's driving all fears. Um, fear of judgment is a fear of death, uh, for instance. Um, and then fear of death is a fear of death and, you know, all, all those fears lead, lead to death. Um, with the exception of the fear of pain, which is a little different, um, well, I wanna, yeah, once, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, oh, I want to, I want to bookmark because I want to get into to death and, and you have some interesting ideas about the role that plays in society and kind of the lack of a discourse around it. But it, really on this point of social anxiety, you talked about social anxiety is a fear of death. And, you know, as people think about it in their, their kind of conscious mind, I think so much of it is the idea that they, they can't express themselves authentically because then they won't be loved by the people around them. They won't connect in the ways they like. And so, you know, they accommodate the perceptions of other people, of who other people, they think other people need them to be. And I'm curious, what are your, what are your thoughts about that, about the people who feel like they cannot be themselves because they, they have to belong, right? It's this fundamental human need to exist in relation, to exist in community. And that, so while that, that primal impulse is there, there's also one that feels more conscious is that, you know, I can't have conversations about things like this with my friends because they just want to go and watch sports. It's like, I can't, you know, tell my religious family that I'm gay because they won't accept. Like, how do you grapple with that very primary need for people to feel like they belong and that people aren't available to, to receive that authentic expression of who they are? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, we've all gone through that. I'm assuming I've certainly gone through that. Um, and, and, and the feeling of being, not accepted by your group of friends or misunderstood and it's an excruciating pain um to feel um not beloved by your by your tribe um but you know this is just sort of more of a blunt a blunt tool uh response but there are other tribes <laughs> totally <laughs> um and one great thing about um uh modern society and and the world we live in today is that accessing those other tribes um 
is is relatively easy compared to what it was. So in the day, yeah, um, that'd be a hard one to answer because you know you're you're stuck with the tribe you have. Um, but trying to change a tribe or, or or make them sort of give you space and demand your space, I think then when when we, then we get into some interesting rubs with them, um, you know, some interesting conflicts that I think are are you know potentially worthwhile, but um, but not necessarily because I think that we're all evolving at our own track on our own tracks and and to find you know groups that are in more sort of harmonic alignment with you um, is is an option and therefore um, probably the best the best option um, you know and at the end of the day though there's I think there's something these are all expressions of your personhood and and your thoughts and your being and then there's one layer underneath that which is just our humanity and I think that um, there are events that can happen there are moments when our humanity is tapped into and we all sort of resonate together despite whatever myriad differences we have with each other. And I think sometimes we're fortunate enough to be in groups that are able to tap into that underlying sort of wealth of love. And then other times, um, you know, it requires an event or that event doesn't happen and there's never that um, reciprocation. Um, But it's hard to sort of manufacture that reciprocation um, when you're not feeling accepted. And so I think one of the great options that we have at our, at our disposal these days is to go look for um, that harmonic alignment with others. Now you just use the words manufacture reciprocation. And the, my mind immediately went to like the social media machine and this, <laughs> right. like, you know, it's like, it feels like people are are trying to do that. And I think what's what's so fascinating is that you're having this conversation and and you've had this experience of existing in the counterculture during your punk rock times, it sounds like, right? And, mm-hmm. and playing to the fringe, existing within that, and then coming through the mainstream and, and receiving that external validation, which which feels like it is, you know, there's this idolatry around fame and the the value that we place on that experience. And I like I forget if it's a Rolling Stones line, it just says like, you know money won't buy me happiness, but I want to find out for myself. And it's like this idea of like Mm. people talk about that with, with fame, right. Of like celebrity and Mm. that there's this assumption that with that many eyeballs on you, with that many likes, that that is acceptance of who you are. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's what's been your experience as you navigate that, you know, as you're talking about this, this consciously about expressing who you really are and being received for that and what's been your experience and how has your experience with fame impacted that journey? Yeah. So it's, it's the, it's the great dilemma of the artist, I think, um, and of the, and of everyone, but as an artist, you're, you're intentionally trying. I mean, it, it is to be an artist and to be successful is inextricably linked with fame. So fame is, you know, fame is just, uh, you know, identified just as that thing that happens when a lot of people that you don't know, know what you're doing and then, and then grant you some success. Um, and meanwhile, you're trying to express yourself, you know, express yourself purely and you don't want to be thinking of other, you don't want to involve that idea of trying to appeal to the masses in your artistic process. Cause it might sort of pollute, uh, your sense of, 
your communication with the universe and what it is that you want to express. And of course, that's for a certain kind of artist. Other kind of artists, um, and I don't totally relate to this as much, are, are view it mostly as like sort of a capitalist um, venture where you're really just seeing what people are into and giving them what they want. Mm. Um, and that that's not interesting to me. But I definitely deal with that at the same time because you don't want to just make your stuff in a vacuum. So you have this this rub. And I'll, I'll communicate the, for me, the most interesting and dangerous time of my, when I was doing the punk rock thing and the fuck you thing um, and the angsty thing, I felt very safe. I didn't feel um, like I was pushing any boundaries. I just felt like I was pushing boundaries in quotations. I was buying the fuck you, you fucking fuck. And I put ketchup on my ketchup t-shirt and that was my art, you know, and I was just putting more ketchup on my ketchup. I was just saying more fuck you and, and adding to it in that way and jumping in trash cans and slitting my face open and doing things that were outrageous but expected and you'd seen them and it's like, yeah, rock and roll. It's like I knew what that was and it was safe. Um, the most unsafe thing I felt like I was started to do was this idea of just being like a child and just being joyful and, and writing a song that was just like, um, you know, just sort of had no irony to it. I was like, oh my God, can I really survive without irony? Because irony is this amazing armor and it protects you against things because it gives you an out. Um, and I got, I got so much, and I was correct in thinking that it was dangerous to drop irony because the, the critics, um, some fans liked it, but, but in 2008, it was still not okay to really do that. There was no revival of the folk renaissance thing yet. Um, you know, none of that stuff had come out yet. Um, everything was still sort of in this ironic, sarcastic, um, fuck you zone. Um, and to do that was really scary. And, and then, and, and then I got embraced from it. You know, the, the, the music was embraced. And I think in part, because you, as an artist, you want to, or for me, I want to look at the social fabric and find out, see where the holes are. And then I want to go to the holes. And, and try and fill in what's not there so I can contribute something. Anyway, so my experience in doing that, which was for me, with Edward Sharp, the creation, that was really scary for me. I was leaving everything I, I was familiar with and that I thought culture was familiar with and going into something that I knew I was going to be ridiculed for and definitely was. In fact, the reason I started writing this book is to try and get to the bottom of why joy was so antithetical to cool hmm. and why why it was that expressions of individualism were synonymous with irony sarcasm pessimism um, and expressions of joy were looked at as like expressions of foolishness and so you know for me it was really scary but then you end up with this sort of this acceptance and i ended up with this you know fame as you you know as it is it's it, it is fame and you just call it what it is it's it's something that every artist sort of needs in order to survive. And yet, you, as an artist, you don't really want to focus on that. And so that rub is really difficult. And, when I, you know, and I do look at my social media numbers and see, like, you know, what worked best, just, you know, not from a meta sort of data perspective, but just, like, daily, I'll be like, oh, shit, like, wow, I just lost 400 followers after I posted this political thing, or I just lost you know, a 5,000 followers after, you know, posting this thing that, you know, whatever. And you know that you can't help but notice those things. And then you can't help but notice the things that, that people love. Um, 
And, you know, and it's really difficult. We have a, a, a famous song called Home. It's our most famous song. And um, I could have on the second album and did actually write a version two of Home that would have been that would have really made our solidified our place and, and made us even more famous and more money and all that. Um, but I suffer from this, um, this idea of, of, of not repeating my, my past successes, this, this idea of individualism, because I don't want to, um, and that's where things get really murky because if I was to just be a child and just do what I wanted to, I probably would have put that song on the second album. But because I didn't want to capitalize on my own success and didn't want to, I was so hyper aware of not wanting to appease the crowd that I actually sort of shot myself in the foot in order to prove to myself that I was making my music just me in the universe. And it gets really disorienting and trying to navigate that space between you know the authenticity of the self and self um, output and then um, and fame and trying not to cow to either um, is really it's disorienting it's really difficult to sort of parse through so I don't have a clear answer on well it's it sounds like again I think that that's the way that you said it is is just true of our experiences that we'll constantly be in a, a tug of war between those things of, of how we're being received and what that authentic yeah. of self is and so I want to get back to that that instance of you know the the, the paradox you're in with that decision on the second album. And I just want to go back to one thing you said. Um, you talked about conforming to, to culture, to the expectations of others. And you talked about how it gives you an out. And, and I loved those words because it's, it feels so subconscious, but so true is that we're, we have this, this knowing, right? This feeling of, of who we really are. And when we're contorting ourselves in, in any way, to appease an audience, a community, a team, uh, our fans, whatever it is, there's just a feeling that if I'm not received, if I'm not accepted, it's not really me, right? And then it, it reminds me of that quote that's like, our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, it's that we're powerful beyond belief, right? And that that experience of who we really are, because the stakes are so high of like our essence being unaccepted as opposed to this performance or whatever it might be. And so I thought, I just, I really love that you said that, that it gives you an out. It, it, you know? Yeah. The, the, well, I mean, so, for, so it's interesting. Sometimes I have the, the same experience you're describing, but sort of inverted where, where, and I, I think as an artist that's trying to get, you know, that that's working in this, in art at all, or even doing, a, you know, like anything we're doing, writing a book, doing a podcast, um, there, there's a certain amount of sort of like crazy horse putting the paint on his face and just being like, fuck it. I'm, I'm, I'm galloping into a sea of rifles with my spear and like, fuck it. Um, and, and you, you have to have this will, this willingness to, to, to destroy, to, to be destroyed, um, without try like having it lean over into self-destruction and irony, irony for me is the, is the, is the greatest, is the greatest out. Um, it allows us the most, the most wiggle room when it comes to being, um, misunderstood mm. so that you can, you can really say, oh, well they didn't, it's their fault. They didn't get it. They don't understand me. Um, 
and and then even being earnest and being misunderstood or by people that that are clinging to irony being like oh well they're 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 be- they're behind me in their their evolutionary process <laughs> like there's some there's some way to write it off as their fault not mine but in the instance that you're describing where it's like suddenly you're like yes well that's not me that's the case where you have that that irony that cloak where you're like yeah well that wasn't that wasn't what i was doing that wasn't me you didn't get it you missed the joke whatever it is um and i think to put yourself out there that's why it's a bit more naked and and disturbing uh on the on the psychic level to put yourself out there earnestly because when you do and then the, and then you get misunderstood or people don't like it um it's far more painful yeah man so i'm i'm yeah. i'm beginning to see a, a theme emerging here in terms of like some of your your pursuits in the realm of of activism of whether it's like community land trusts and giving individuals ownership of of where they live of their homes whether it's proxy vote and giving individuals access to the democratic process, like true impact. And now we're talking so deep about your, your personal journey here and the expression of self. And, you know, this, this value of individualism seems to be something that you hold very near and dear. And I'm just curious of where did this get planted in you? Um, so, so it's, it's individualism, but in, but an inverted sort of an individualism that, naturally um is communal and uh, the real sort of expression of individualism in my mind um and say more about what you mean can you say more about what you mean there yeah I, i will yeah um so individualism Individualism, as we know it today, express yourself. That that whole sort of trope of um, of stand apart from the crowd. Um, that that variation on on individualism, um, where you can purchase it, and it's essentially a, a wing or a an expression of capitalism. So the stratification of products, <laughs> really briefly, but like the idea that. Now we don't have one cereal, but we have a bazillion cereals. The way that that's marketed to us and the way that that sustains itself as a business model is that each each variation of cereal appeals to a variation of person. Who are you? What kind of cereal do you like? Um, you know, um, what kind of gum do you like? What kind of card do you like? What kind of color do you like? Um, what kind of hat? On down, on down. The the whole damn thing is is sold to us in terms of. Who are you? Express yourself. And and all the way down to kids. I was looking at this Kmart commercial for kids that were about six and they're on their way to their to first grade and being told to, you know, which outfit do you want? And it's this girl who tries on all these different outfits. And then finally she's like, I'm me, and she does her thing. Or Vincent Gallo being like, be this, be that, just be. You know, this whole idea of just being ourselves is really entrenched, entrenched in us. So individualism is something we all grew up with. And this idea that that you know something we almost feel compelled to have to search for who am i what am i expressing how am i how am i different um and it it's sort of hand in hand with this idea of rebellion but it's really being marketing marketed to us all day every day um and what i mean by it's sort of my revelation with individualism as this sort of inverted version of individualism is what i mean where the individual um, extricates themselves from that 
commercial process um, and from the idea of individualism as rebellion and realizes individualism as an expression of love, um, an expression of sort of the space you talked about at the beginning. And once you're in that space, um, then, you know, whatever happens, happens. And, and I wouldn't pretend to know what it happened, you know, what that is for each person. But for me, it is a desire to, um, to create community. Um, so, you know, a community that is all holding space for each other to be themselves. Mm. Um, so not me sort of claiming my own space, um, as opposed to yours, but me opening my space to yours, um, and you opening your space to mine, um, and no longer having that social anxiety. So my, my version of individualism is a release of social anxiety so that, um, we're no longer essentially afraid of each other. You're not afraid of being judged by me and I'm not afraid of being judged by you. So we can be together for real, um, in a, in a real way. And instead of putting up our barriers and, and showing each other, you know, how tough we are individually and how impervious we are to the other person's judgment, um, releasing that idea of judgment altogether and just sort of being together. Yeah. Um, so when you see like, like we don't have set lists and I've never had a set list with Edward Sharp and much to the chagrin of like, you know, my manager, the band itself, no one likes, it's very unprofessional to not have a set list. But what I like doing is asking the audience what they want to hear. Even for the first song, we'll wander out not knowing what we're going to play uh, because I want to trust them and I want them to feel that trust. And with proxy vote, allowing citizens to vote on bills themselves so that their representatives can get a sense of what they want and trusting them too. Because I think that once we feel that sense of um, agency, um, we can become the superhumans that, that, that we really are, you know, and once we feel that. I mean, it's, it's a naive standpoint, but I love the danger of, of earnestness. I love the danger of um of willful um willful willful i guess optimism is the word it's not naivety because when you're aware of something you can't be naive to it but it can be perceived as that but i think that it's the most optimism is courageous and pessimism is not pessimism is um is just not and irony is not courageous irony is um is is smart and you can make a lot of great points with irony, and I fucking love it, and it's hilarious. Um, but it's not necessarily the, the pinnacle of courage. Um, I think the pinnacle of courage is trust. So that's, I guess, my point. The pinnacle of courage is trust. Yeah. Beautiful, man. It really is. And so where, from this message, in terms of how this is infusing not only your music, your life, uh, your, your, your companies, where do you hope this goes in the future? How do you hope this reaches more people? And what is the impact that you hope that has on society, on the world? Um, so it's difficult because there's this X factor of, of commerce. So when the thing that, for instance, I was hoping to imbue to all other rock and roll bands for, as Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros was um, 
a deconstruction of professionalism, and professionalism being just another variation of social anxiety where there's these norms of how you're supposed to sound, and this is what gets on the radio, and that doesn't. Um, and I was trying to deconstruct professionalism. I, I used to say um, unprofessionalizing professionalism is my profession. <laughs> and, um, and, and I was hoping to imbue that to these other bands, but instead what happened was they took the tropes of like, hey, like there's little things we would do, um, like a boy singing to a girl, a trumpet, um, a lot of hays and hoes. And they took that and then they made it far more professional. And they and they made it way more clean and packaged and had a lot of success with it, and essentially missed my point almost entirely, uh, with the exception of maybe you know contributing the idea that um, that communal joy could be a commercially viable um, uh, product, I guess you know. But that that was not that was not the real thing I wanted to do. I, I really wanted to sort of deconstruct professionalism and the fears around the delivery of a product. Um, so what I think that, and, and there's reasons for that uh, with regard to the porous, when the more slick something is anything, uh, the less porous it is and the less you can enter it. Um, and the less essentially individualistic it is. So, um, yeah, that was part of the goal of that. Sorry. go ahead. No, I think, I think as you're talking about that, about professionalizing unprofessionalism, I think that, you know, if we think about, some of the societal structures and like why people are afraid of this is because it feels like if we're going to allow each individual to express himself authentically, then in a way there's, there's anarchy, you lose order or there's an assumption that that is the case. Mm. Do, do you like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, look, there, the, the, the um, there's an interesting fact the, the, the most, the top 10, uh, the top 10 most played radio songs of all time have come out in the last 10 years. Um, and the reason for that, and that includes Elvis and all of these other things, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I did read that. Um, and, and it makes sense. And the reason is that radio stations no longer just pick what they think they should play. They look at uh, the metadata of society and social media and what's popular on social media and just play whatever social media data is feeding them back at society. Um, so the idea that there, that crowd wisdom, um, is going to, or that by, uh, horizontalizing everything and, um, um, what am I, what do I want to say? Democratizing the process. We're going to end up with all of these amazing iterations of individuality. It's actually what I'm witnessing is sort of, you know, the opposite, um, by, uh, by democratizing music, for instance, um, we're ending up with a lot less vertical, um, knowledge about, for instance, how to record drums. Um, so instead all of these people are just using pre-recorded drums and then not just pre-recorded drums, but all using, you know, a pool of five kick drums and then like, four snares that are really like really popular and that's even going to whittle down even further um because there is there is this sort of group wisdom where like you know an audience prefers this kind of kick it's the one that hits the chest the most and then an audience prefers this kind of snare it's the one that tickles the brain the most and there's some wisdom to that but then all of a sudden you end up with this homogenization and this homogenizing of culture um and so that 
you know, the, the idea of, of democratizing and horizontalizing everything based on fame, again, based on what the masses all like and the data of the masses, um, it, it goes to prove the, the very idea that as an artist, focusing on just what the people like and doing tests, like crowd tests and stuff to determine what the single is and all that, um, may give you more capitalist success, but will homogenize art in general and actually serves to um, compress the individuality of any particular art form into uh, sort of a homogenous pancake. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered that question, but but um, yeah, I can't even remember what the question was, but that really disturbs me because it comes back again and it's not just going to be cities that we say there's only LA, New York and San Francisco and everything else is Cleveland, but it's going to be everything is Cleveland. <laughs> like not just cities, but music, food, the whole thing is all, is all Cleveland. Um, and it gets, it, gets, it gets into really, really strange territory when you start thinking about analyzing um, the metadata of, of, of crowd wisdom. It's, it's, yeah, you, you said before that individualism as an expression of love and not rebellion, but when you say that everything's going to become Cleveland, I kind of want to rebel a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to. I think, I think that, that that sense that I had, the reason I, that sense I had to not put a home version two on the second album to repeat my successes um, was also, is, is a virtue on a certain level because you, you know, even though maybe it wasn't the, the most genuine expression of my joy as a, as a child, um, it was me being very wary of, um, of branding, of creating myself as a brand. And I think, you know, Rihanna had this, this quote a while back where someone asked her if she would ever play with Taylor Swift. And she said, I don't think so. Our brands don't match. Mm. And I was like, wow, she didn't say our bands don't match. She said our brands don't match. And that's really where, you know, culture has become in the 90s. If you would have said that you would have been lambasted for being just a sellout. But um, things have um, become so commercialized that that's no longer a concern of artists. It's it's really just about this uh, commercial success. Yeah. So I, I just thought of this uh, while you were talking about that. I thought about have you seen the, the documentary? I think it's called Long Strange Trip. Scorsese produced it about the Grateful Dead. I haven't yet. No. So one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about it is, you know, my, my parents didn't really listen to the dead growing up. And so I, I hadn't gotten into them too deeply, but the documentary is incredible. And one of the things that I, I discovered about that experience, and I don't know, are you a fan of the dead or like, did you follow their music growing up? Yeah. I, I'm not one of those guys that, that freaks out about the different set lists. So, so I don't know it that, that deeply, um, but, but, uh, yeah. but so what they, what they talked about in terms of how they built this traveling community that was going to, you know, 20, 30 shows on a tour, um, was because of the experience that they created is that you had these, you know, individual musical geniuses who, when they would come up on stage, like they would have a, a set list, but also at the same time, there was so much room for, improvisation and the band the band valued that you know that freedom more than anything else that they were not controlled by any set list or anything that in the moment they were always going to do exactly what they wanted to do in the moment and for each one of their shows they did that and what they talked about is a collective experience for the community 
is that they knew that the band was going to do exactly what they wanted to do. And that awareness gave the community permission to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do. So if you're Mm. a whirling dervish and you have 40 people at a dead show that are just spinning in circles, or if you have a group of people that are just on heroic doses of acid, you just had permission for every single person to do that, which is, you know, again, I think what you, what you talked about, man, about making joy cool or accessible, the earnestness of that, of you talked about being a baby and allowing that, that state to just shine through. And I think I remember seeing your, your tiny desk show so many years ago. I don't even remember what year that would have been, but it, I think it was the same thing, man, of just giving people permission to experience that, that joy. Cause it seemed like it was there for you guys, but, but all of it. And so. I, yeah. Permission that that's, that's exactly right, man. Like the, the thing that I'm trying to do, the thing you just crystallized it. And I, I, I forgot that I, I used to actually say that is that I'm trying, I'm on stage trying to give the audience permission by just being an example of permission. And, and once you, once you do that, it's sort of communicated and like it was crystallized for me in this moment in, um, it was in Wyoming, uh, Missoula, Missoula, Montana, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I got on stage and usually I, I have some kind of preparation where I release whatever baggage I have before I get on stage, but somehow I was in a shitty mood and I got on stage and I wasn't able to shake it off. And I was completely just like cramped up by, by my own insecurities and anxieties and whatever. And the audience were the ones that were the example of permission. And, and they were showing me so much permission. And, and as soon as we walked on stage, they were just fucking cut loose. Somehow they had got the memo before we got there. <laughs> and, um, and they inspired me. And it was one of my favorite shows of all time. And, and so immediately it gave me permission. And so it works both ways. And, and I think that um, at the end of the day, I, I really think that that's in some ways the, the greatest thing that art can, can give is permission, um, especially per- live performance. Um, when you see something and it makes you feel fucking free and it gives you permission to, um, to let go of any social anxieties you had and, ex- and express yourself in the moment as you, as you want to and, and, and with that joy. As you are, man. Well, Alex, I think that that seems like a beautiful place to to close it and bring it to a wrap. And so, brother, before we we let you go, um, is there anything else that you want to uh, you want to share just to tie a, a bow on the idea? And then uh, after that, I want to know where people can connect with you now online, how they can connect with the the different projects that you you're putting out into the world. So, anything else you want to say in closing? Um. I guess just on a personal note, like the, I go, I'm going through this every day, all day. I'm going through it right now. As you asked that question, I, I felt waves of anxiety in like, what am I going to respond with? Um, I, I went through a, a, a quick process of letting that anxiety go. Um, I deal with this all day, every day. And I think that um mastery of permission is an ongoing conversation that that i that i think best is described as um 
and and best can be sort of measured in the period of time that you're able to create that space for you, but before the next hammer falls. Um, so creating, you know, from, from thought to thought, um, from fearful thought to fearful thought, the space in between, how large is that space? And can I make it a little bit longer and a little bit larger? And can I exist in freedom a little bit longer? And when I'm on stage, um, and I get, and I access that, that place of permission, inevitably there'll be a moment where I do something that I feel is fraudulent. And by fraudulent, I mean is rife with social anxiety or rife with uh, self-consciousness and fear. And usually what I'll do on stage, I'll just stop. I stop moving. I stop doing anything because I don't want to make one more false move, mm. one, more, one more move that's dictated by my fear of the crowd or of judgment. Um, and I'll just stop and I'll wait for the next genuine instinct to come. And then I'll move. And if I could only apply that in life, and I try to, but um, on stage, I feel like I have to. But it's a good example of, for instance, when you just asked me the question, what I felt like I had to do, which was just stop, think, let the thoughts go, access a place of instinct and whatever's real for me in the moment, and then move forward again. And, um, and I think this, this idea of permission is just this ongoing conversation where we try and just peel those moments of fear further and further away from each other and step into that space more and more. You know, one thing I want to acknowledge in that was a, a couple of things, and I'm happy that you brought it up because I think that it, it invites in kind of a, a teaching moment for the audience. But you talked about the pause. And one of the things that I've learned through Gestalt is the idea of doing nothing is something. You know what I mean? And when we allow ourselves a pause to stop, that that is, that is a conscious action when we do that, that supports us in expressing ourselves more authentically, as opposed to just responding yeah. to some sort of external stimulus. And that when you acknowledge the pause as an important part of this process of expressing yourself based on these, these, this intuition, these instincts, it's a powerful thing. And, and even for you to be able to say that in the moment of like acknowledging the anxiety, which I think is so powerful again, to see, you know, a figure that we we've seen on stages that we've seen in front of audiences expressing themselves so confidently. And so for people that are, are in the space, what would you, what's been your own journey? And like, if you were to share something that's been helpful in your own process of being able to to recognize anxiety and transcend it so that you are capable of, of expressing yourself. What, what's been most helpful for you on your own journey? Um, there's a lot of techniques um, and just pausing and, and stopping is, is definitely one of them and allowing, allowing that sort of um, that place of the witness to, to enter where I'm sort of witnessing my thoughts and all that. And we've all, we've all heard about, that technique, but I want to share one that is probably something no one has heard of, um, which is sort of um, will sound a little bizarre. But before I go on stage, um, sometimes, um, especially if I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety, um, I will attempt to experience more anxiety. No, even more. 
No, that's not anxious enough. Let's get really fucking wow. anxious. Let's get so fucking anxious. No, that's not enough. Ooh, more anxious. Ooh, how anxious can I get? And I get as I get as anxious as possible. Ooh, I'm really anxious now. <laughs> and all of a sudden I start basically laughing, or it become my anxiety becomes absurd because I I bring the anxiety into such disproportionate absurdity that I suddenly am removed for, wow. from it. And and I have that witness perspective, and it liberates me. And 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 usually I get to that place where just like just now I start, I start laughing. Um, yeah, beautiful man. <laughs> well, when I was uh, so before we close it out, what's what's kind of taking up most of your energy these days? I know you're working on on the book. I don't I don't want to say the book title. I don't know if it's it's still under wraps. But uh, where where can people find you online, and and how can we support you and and what you have going on in the world? Right. Um, well, uh, actually, probably the, the most fun place to, to find me at the moment uh, is an app that I made um, with a friend called Tuners. Um, and it's basically like Twitter or like Instagram, but just audio. And all you do is basically leave uh, voice memos for the world, and then you can respond to other people's voice memos. So I leave... Um, sort of my daily thoughts there and and people can respond and create their own stuff and you can create your own stations but but mainly I like it because talk about like being confronted with your own authenticity um I can write like you know I feel weird today and then send it and tweet it or something but if I have to record my voice saying I feel weird today I'm immediately aware as to whether or not I meant it mm. Was I being authentic when I said it? Was it was it weird? Did I say it in a weird sort of ironic way? Was it like how did I just say that? And so what I like about it is it's to me feels like a much more honest social media tool. Just like we're talking right now, and this feels very naked to do this with you. Um, it's similar on that, but as opposed to a conversation that's in real time, you sort of have the space um, to, to record your thoughts and then post them and then respond if, if someone responds. So yeah, tuners, um, on the app store and, uh, you can find me there. Tuners radio, tuners, social radio. Cool. And we'll have, uh, all the other links to Alex's stuff in the show notes, as well as his, uh, social media channels. And, uh, Alex, before you got on today, actually, I went to your Twitter. I just wanted to see like what you were, were talking about at the moment. And I scrolled down a little bit and I saw that, uh, what appears to be a fan had quoted your lyrics and it feels like it per it perfectly summarizes the chat that we had. And it says uh, a little less cool, a little more free. What's, what, what song <laughs> um, is that from? Um, honestly, I have no idea. I've written too many songs. <laughs> but, but again, it's, it's, I really, I've enjoyed the chat and, um, you know, before even in having the conversation of just being able to, to witness it, uh, as a fan of the music and now talking to you and seeing, you know, how much you're, you're embodying that message and bringing it to, to people and in the, the social context as well. So, so thank you for, for living the message, man. And we really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. This is great. <laughs>